นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะSomebody's asked a question this evening, which says, "Over a number of months now, I have become aware of a state of mind which colours nearly the whole of my day. It is a feeling of dissatisfaction, and I have never witnessed it so clearly before. And I am shocked to see its unending complaining and wishing things and people were otherwise." I don't find it liberating at all to see it, and sometimes the feeling of despair takes hold. Could you give some skillful guidance as to how one can come to accept that this is how it is? Well, as to the uh, last sentence there, um, asking for skillful guidance as to how one can come to it, accept that this is how it is. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's meant by that because um, being left with a feeling of despair and dissatisfaction and a uh, complaining and criticizing mind is uh, obviously not attractive. Um, Perhaps, but perhaps the person asking the question is uh, is already uh, coming from a place of assuming that if they can really accept the experience of dissatisfaction, the really the feeling of despair, that in that state of of actual acceptance, that they will be able to move on. And if that's the case, well, then there's certainly uh, something something skillful in that attitude. However, we do need to be uh, careful um, that when we're paying attention to the ability we have to accept the way things are, that we're not trying to strike a bargain. That uh, well, I'll accept this so, just so that it'll disappear, and uh, it can get quite subtle. It's also similar to um, well, I'll practice loving kindness um, with this person just so that I can get rid of them, or I'll practice loving kindness with this irritation just so that it'll go away, and the the. Uh, Unseen desire to get rid of an unwelcome state uh, can, in fact, be used as fuel for keeping that state going. So, you know, with regards to receiving the state of dissatisfaction and despair, um, 
It's very subtle, the effort that's needed. Mm. Of course, if we heedlessly accept our suffering, our anger, our our pain, our greed, our dislike, uh, our criticism, if we heedlessly accept it as some sort of ideal about this is what good Buddhists are supposed to do or this is what I'm supposed to do, we can in fact become complacent and uh, that's not going to uh, take us where we want to go, obviously. But I think uh, quite rightly uh, we should question the uh, attitude that we have of uh, trying to get rid of the disagreeable experiences we have. um, To come across after some time of practice, presumably, this person has come across this all-pervading sense of dissatisfaction that's there and they're feeling quite shocked uh, the extent of it and and wishing things were otherwise and people were otherwise, that um, it could be the case that you know, there's something going wrong and I, uh, I need to overcome this and feel good. I need to make myself feel good about my spiritual practice. Well, it's, uh, it's not necessarily the way the Buddha was putting it. Yes, he did talk about developing joy and tranquility and happiness and contentment. Um, but uh, if, you, if you look at those who listen to the teachings of those who have embraced the Buddha's teachings wholeheartedly, whole bodily, and given themselves into the training, uh, you hear the way they talk about the battle, the ordeal uh, of engaging the the fires, the, the greed, the aversion, the delusion, and or the, the Buddha's own image of conquering a thousand times a thousand men in battle on your own is easier than actually conquering the self. So, so the ordeal of waking up, the ordeal of uh, finding freedom from suffering is not a picnic. And sometimes our attitudes towards the spiritual life are, uh, are what causes us to feel shocked. I mean, uh, and, um, sometimes it's the case if uh, you're feeling shocked about something. Well, that's that's a good that's a good indication. So maybe there's a, a little bit of waking up to something there. Yeah, we we only feel shocked about things that we're we're, we're totally unaware. And so it uh, it can be useful to. It can be skillful to prepare ourselves with a view that um, means that when we come across darkness, uh, when we come across the defilements of the mind, when we come across the obstructions, now to have prepared ourselves to not automatically assume that this is bad news. It can look like bad news. If we have our our view of the spiritual life as um, a bed of roses, it's all just getting better and better, love and light and peace and all that. If we have such a view, well then, uh, yes, we are going to be in for continual rude awakenings as we uh, 
progress. Uh, we're going to be disappointed continually because it is um, it's not good stuff that's obstructing clarity and peace of heart and mind. It's not goodness, it's not virtue, it's not beauty that's getting in the way of self-existent well-being. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When I was living many years ago uh, with uh, the first teacher I trained under in Thailand, Vinamajan Tate, and there was another Western monk there living at the time. Uh, we became friends and and this uh, this fellow, he had, um, seems to be anyway, he had pretty good samadhi meditation. My samadhi was and still is rubbish. Uh, so uh, I guess I was a little bit envious of him. He was He was getting on pretty well with his samadhi and Ajahn Tate praised him, uh, how well he was doing and um, experiences that he was relating and Ajahn Tate was really complimentary. And, and then a few days later, uh, this young monk came to see me and he was in such a miserable condition, a miserable state. And what he wanted to talk about was he realized he caught himself being conceited about his meditation. And the pain of conceit was so awful, so ugly, so unattractive, that uh, he fell into despair over it. And uh, I would suggest that that's because he wasn't properly prepared. Because the fact is that to be able to see conceit as conceit, that's good news. To be able to really see when awareness is is broad enough, is well well established enough to be able to see conceit in the mind without becoming so caught in conceit that you don't even see it as a state. Well, surely that would be that would be a valuable uh, insight to have. And yet, if we if we, as I said, if we approach the spiritual life with the idea that it's just going to be all fun and uh, waking up means actually just waking up to greater moments of happiness one after another, well, we're likely to be very disappointed. The truth is that our predicament, the predicament we find ourselves in, of being caught up in samsara, caught up in habits of delusion, is really a painful, sad predicament. And there are, perfectly, it's perfectly understandable that there are going to be moments when we find that we can pull back from this whole drama and not be so caught up in it and see it, and sadness, in fact, is going to be the appropriate response. Yeah, this is a sad thing that that we, we we waste this wonderful, precious opportunity we have to develop kindness and patience and goodness and generosity and determination and equanimity and wisdom. Uh, these, uh, these potentials that human beings have, all articulated by the Buddha, as as, as worthy and and virtuous. And yet we spend so much of our energy in heedlessness, forgetfulness, indulging and resentment, bitterness and feeling sorry for ourselves. And if that's not sad, what is? I mean, that is a really sad predicament. But to recognize it is not sad. To see sadness without becoming sad. To see sadness without becoming sad. To see the satisfaction without taking a position against it. You see the complaining, miserable mind in a moment of quietness and, and clarity, and pull back from 
being caught up in the activity of the mind and and you just see this I shouldn't be this way, he shouldn't be this way, she shouldn't be this way, life shouldn't be this way. Why can't it be like that? Why can't he stop doing this? Well, the first impulse in seeing that, it could well be, you know. I shouldn't be having these reactions. I shouldn't have such a complaining mind. But another possibility, if we're properly prepared ourselves, you say, well, that's good news. Thank goodness I've seen that at last. Thank goodness. I wonder how long I've been doing that for. And we can prepare ourselves with this in meditation. You have the particular effort that you're making in meditation. You set yourself up with, this is what I'm going to do in meditation, whatever kind of exercise and whatever kind of effort that you might be making in meditation. And then you set out on this, making this effort and, and then the mind starts to wander and you, you're thinking about some memory from the past or you're speculating about what you're going to do tomorrow, sunny day, have a picnic. And then you catch yourself dreaming. At that point, what do we do? At that point where we catch ourselves dreaming, when we, when we remember what we're supposed to be doing, when we realize that we've forgotten and we remember, at that point, what do we do? Because that's, that's to be welcomed. That moment of remembering is to be welcomed. If, on the other hand, we follow our conditioned habit of, oh, I'm hopeless, I, I'm just you know, meditating, but just dreaming all the time, well, what is that? That endlessly following our conditioned, complaining, criticizing mind just gets even more compounded. That's really unfortunate. If we do do that with meditation and our formal practice, you know, mind's a little bit more subtle maybe, a little bit more collected than it is normally, a little bit more focused. Uh, it's, it's vulnerable, it's impressionable. And so if we allow ourselves to fall into such heedlessness and formal practice, well, it's even more likely that in daily life, you know, walking around and pop up comes some new fresh perspective on how caught up in delusion you've been for ages and instead of being able to welcome it, say, well, that's really useful. We get into complaining and falling back into the past. We have this image of ourselves of how we should be and how we shouldn't be and we compare our experience of this moment with this image we have of ourselves, and we miss the opportunity to grow. Now, there's nothing new about that. That's what we've been doing for a long time. That's why it is a difficult uh, task that, that we've taken on, this effort to to find awakening, uh, to arrive at awakening, it's uh, liberation, to free the heart and mind from all distortions. It is a, a challenging task. Um, so we need to exercise tremendous care as you go along. And one of the, one of the, um, one of the traps that, that we can easily fall into from the very beginning of making some effort along the spiritual in uh, spiritual practice and, and we maybe discover some new things we, we see some things we haven't seen before and because we have habits of grasping we grasp at this whatever this insight this new perspective this new sense of possibility wonderful expanded sense of possibility it's very welcome and, 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 and genuinely appreciated and 
but uh, because of our uh, uh, heedless and automatic reaction to even to a moment of, of clearer, clearer seeing, we grasp at it and we think, well, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be all the time. I'm supposed to be developing these insights all the time. You know, I'm supposed to be more spiritual. I'm supposed to be getting more spiritual. And then we can study the scriptures and you can study what the Buddha said and, and the Buddha's profound insights. And, and then, um, but if we still have these habits of grasping, then we don't really, we're not really doing what the Buddha was doing. We're not really doing what the Buddha was asking us to do. And what the Buddha was asking us to do was to develop a quality of awareness that encompasses all activities in our life. Sitting, standing, walking, lying down is the image that the Buddha used. The four postures. In other words, all-round mindfulness. And everything we're doing, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, talking, engaging, writing on the computer, digging the garden, chopping the wood, uh, whatever we're doing, to bring mindfulness to it. And why do we need to bring mindfulness to it? So that we can see in the moment that we are doing what we're doing, which creates suffering. If we don't get that, if we're not there for it, if our, if our moment mindfulness is not up to scratch, you know, we've just got common and garden variety mindfulness, well, it's not going to be able to do the work. And so we have to really develop this steadiness of mind and this watchfulness so that when we do what we do, that creates a problem out of life, then we can hopefully, then the chances are we can catch it and say, all right, that's, that's it, that's what we're doing. And so, yes, the Buddha, of course, encouraged uh, formal meditation practice, but he didn't um, say that's what we have to be doing all day long. Sometimes you've got to go and wash your clothes, sometimes you've got to wash your body, sometimes you have to talk with people, you know, However, if we pick up the teachings in the wrong way, we, can, we have a little meditation experience. The next thing you know, we think if we're not meditating, we're not practicing. If we're not on retreat, we're not practicing. Yeah, and this is a mistake. Yeah. The encouragement of, of all the great teachers is to consider everything as practice. And by everything as practice, we mean we try to bring mindfulness to everything. So that when something comes along that we didn't expect and we get shocked... Aha, it's like this. We open to the experience. We try to inhibit, make that effort which inhibits the judgment, saying it shouldn't be this way. And this is really worth watching, really watching the informal practice and in daily life practicing, watching the tendency of the mind to say it shouldn't be this way. Now, we're not saying it should be this way. Sometimes, of course, you point out to people that you don't have to say it shouldn't be this way. Well, there's an assumption that we're saying it should be this way. Well, of course we're not saying it should be this way. We're not saying that we should feel full of despair or that we f- should be full of anger or should be full of conceit or the world should be full of violence. We're not saying that. But this compulsive tendency to say life shouldn't be this way, in effect what it is is a pushing away. It's a rejection of the experience. How can we learn from something if we push it away? How can we study something if we don't look at it? How can we learn from a teacher if we don't listen to them? Mm. So life is our teacher and suffering is our field of investigation. What is it we're doing and how and where and when are we doing it that creates this suffering? So grasping at the ideal that we need to do more meditation, that's not it. Grasping the idea we don't have to do meditation, that's not it. 
grasping at anything, uh, even the Buddha's teachings. And sometimes um, people will ask about um, the teachings on anatta and say, you know, um, the Buddha taught anatta, and and and, um, and so what I get from this is that there's no self. Well, actually, that's not subtle enough. That's not exactly what the Buddha was saying. Uh, it's more the case. It's much more subtle than that. But people can grasp at an initial understanding of what the Buddha was saying, say, oh, so there's no self. And and so, well, if there's no self, well, then it doesn't matter what's going on. Just let go of everything. And, but we can't do that. We need to work with what we've got. And what we've got is a feeling of self. Remember when... Um, a woman, an English woman, was visiting Wat Pa Pong, and she used to. She eventually moved on to become uh, one of the first nuns, Sister Rochana. And she was talking to Ajahn Chah about this point and asking Ajahn Chah, "How how is it that um, how do you practice samadhi if there's no self? How can you practice meditation if there's no self? There's got to be me making the effort to concentrate." And Ajahn Shah said, yes, that's right, you do. When you're practicing samadhi, you work with a self, a sense of self. There is a sense of self. When you're practicing vipassana, you're working with not-self, investigating the insubstantiality of this perception of self. And then he went on to say that when you really know what you're doing, you're beyond self and not-self. Now, again, if we just to have an initial understanding of the Buddha's teachings and don't really apply them with carefulness, with sensitivity, with investigation, then we can be busy trying to get rid of the self. And it may well be in response to this question that suddenly come across all this complaining mind, this dissatisfaction and discontentment. It could well be that... uh, the effort that's been made in the past has just been trying to get rid of things that we don't like. Trying to get rid of our personality. Because if, if you become a sotapanna, you're not fooled by personality belief anymore. And so an initial understanding of that might lead us to think, well, I've got to get rid of my personality if I'm going to become a sotapanna. So I don't want to pay any attention to my, my personality. My habits to, to be nasty to people, my habits to, to uh, misbehave, my habits to be lazy my habits to follow my addictions, all these different expressions of my distorted, imbalanced personality, just get rid of them all. And so sometimes a meditation effort can be in that direction. Just focus on on an object, do anything but, but pay attention to what's actually happening right here and now. So when there is a an expression of dissatisfaction, of disappointment and despair. Mm. Yes, sometimes it is the case that what's called for is to turn away from it. Mm. Ill will. Yes, sometimes what's called for is to turn the mind away from the ill will, not to dwell on it, and to build up the strength of mind so as to not be pulled into the vortex of this energy. However, it could well be the case that just by turning away from these distortions of consciousness that we don't find resolution. It doesn't bring us freedom. 
And so some of the distractions of mind are of such a level of intensity that we need to, from a place of mindfulness, from a place of feeling strong and capable, turning towards them and looking and say, what is this feeling of disappointment? What is this feeling of disappointment? Or this feeling of anticipation that I'm feeling to get interested in it and to study it. If our mindfulness is not strong enough and our mind is not steady enough, of course, we can get sucked into that vortex and we've got to rescue ourselves, pull ourselves back up again and back out again because we don't want to be creating the karma of indulging in this stuff. So to develop that perspective whereby when it's called for, we can turn to it and we can look at it, we can feel and say, oh, no, that's what this is. That's what this feels like. Whinging and whining feels like this. Yuck. It doesn't feel good at all. It really feels bad. Now, from another perspective, my everyday habitual deluded personality perspective, it's great. You can complain about everything and criticize everybody. It feels great. That's just me. That's what I do. I've got smart aleck opinions about everything. It can feel great on one level. But when we slow down, slow down and pull back and, and feel it. Oh, ouch. Ouch. Mindfulness of suffering <laughs> leads to freedom from suffering. That's it. We're supposed to feel that. We're supposed to feel the ouch. You know, if we don't feel the ouch, if we don't feel the consequence, then we're not going to let go. So this is actually good news. Now, I know this person here says in the letter they don't find it liberating. Well, yeah, okay, so you've been noticing it, but um, maybe there needs to be a more refined level of noticing it. Because noticing it is good news. I mean, if we don't notice it, we're not aware of it, well, then it's happening underground. It's happening in unawareness. So, as I started off by saying there, one of the mistakes people can make when they grasp the Buddha's teaching, for instance, the teachings on anatta, is they grasp the idea of not-self. They don't pick this sophisticated, subtle tool for investigation up and, and investigate into our experience for seeing the feeling of meanness that is being born out of this uh, uninformed, unintelligent relationship with experience. The experience is just so, whatever it is, delightful, un- unpleasant, whatever the experience is just so. But our relationship with that experience is such that it's creating this experience of meanness. And that's what the Buddha wants us to see because when we actually see that experience of meanness, of I am angry, I want, that the pain of that, the seeing of it, is what precipitates the letting go, the not doing of it, the not doing of the clinging. How are we going to learn to not cling if we don't see that clinging hurts? Now, somebody who's got leprosy, for instance, has got to be very careful. They don't have any feeling in their hands. And so they go around sticking their hands in fire, picking up this, that and the other, and it's because there's no nerves. They don't feel anything. They do things that actually bring about damage to their body. Well, if our hearts are not alive with with awareness and, and right understanding, then unfortunately we go around doing stuff with our consciousness, with our attention. And by doing stuff, I mean we go clinging to things. That is actually doing a damage to our being. And that is something the Buddha wanted us to see. 
But if we just cling to the idea, for instance, of anatta, then sometimes we just we just go even further away from our experience. Uh, Ajahn Turidamo, in, uh, in one of his talks, he was talking about he had this expression, the anatta shuffle, where uh, maybe you're talking with somebody or engaged with somebody and and they start to feel uncomfortable and or maybe uh, maybe they're getting angry. But instead of actually really coming to terms with and owning up to their anger and dealing with their anger, they allow their minds to wander off into some imaginary reality where they just start talking about the emptiness of all conditions. And, and so they use the, misuse the Buddhist teachings, misusing the teachings on anatta, misusing the Buddhist teachings on emptiness, misusing the Dhamma to avoid what actually the Buddha is asking us to do is to feel what we feel when we're caught up in our tricks. So this person's experience of um, recognizing how whinging and whining and complaining their mind is, uh, well, if you're not finding this recognizing it uh, to be a liberating experience, well, then maybe you're missing out on something. Uh, because whatever it is that's obstructing self-existent well-being, obstructing the experience the Buddha lived as, whatever it is in us that's obstructing that, is something we do want to see. It may come initially as a shock to us, but that's just because, you know, we've been in it for a long time. We don't have to feel bad about it because we've been in it for a long time. I mean, maybe it's just in some things, perhaps we're not going to see them until we're actually dying. Maybe at the point of death we start to wake up to things. And So what I would recommend is to prepare ourselves that when we see something unpleasant in our consciousness, to just to check to see is that that compulsive tendency to say it shouldn't be this way, I'm wrong for being this way. That's not necessary. We don't have to be saying that. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Angamayam namakataya sadhu karam dhamma se.